on today's episode of The Mythic Masculine. The first thing that happened is I read a book. I, I was already in grad school, and I already was a year into a totally different dissertation topic, having nothing to do with anthropology or sexuality or anything. And I read a book called The Moral Animal by Robert Wright. Mm. And I, it was a fantastic book. It's, it was about the new science of evolutionary psychology. And he delineates this way of thinking, which is that evolution, Darwinian selection and all that not only shaped our body, uh, but it also shaped our behavior. And the argument of that book and of evolutionary psychology in general is that men and women are fated to have constantly be in conflict because we have opposing reproductive agendas, which is basically that, you know, women are looking for a man who's going to be a provider, who's going to stick around, who's going to take care of them and bring them food and protection and, you know, all these sorts of things. On the other hand, men come in 15 seconds and we're on our way. There's no investment. So minimal parental investment of the men is very low and the minimal parental investment of the women is very high. You know, we're destined to be in this constant struggle. And I, I read this book and I thought it made perfect sense. It was fantastic. It explained everything. At the time I was living with a stripper in San Francisco and I started proselytizing about this book with her and all her friends. And pretty much without exception, they said to me, Chris, I uh, love you, dude, but that's a bunch of bullshit. That's, that's a Victorian male, phallocentric way of looking at female sexuality. We only trade sex for stuff because the culture makes us. We don't want to do that. We have sex because it feels good. In fact, it feels better for us than it does for you. I can have five orgasms. What about you? And they sort of presented this to me and I was like, damn, they're, they make some good points. So I went back and started looking into the original source material and I found bonobos. And at that point, nobody was talking about bonobos. This was, you know, way before bonobos were cool. I had never heard of bonobos. And like, okay, so this guy's talking about chimpanzees through the whole book, but he doesn't mention bonobos, which are equally relevant to any kind of discussion of human evolved tendencies because we share the same amount of DNA. They're equidistant in terms of, you know, evolutionary trajectory. And bonobos are the opposite of monogamous. They're totally free love. Anybody can have sex with anybody who's down for it. Anyway, I read that and I was like, well, why the hell weren't they mentioned? How come I've never heard of bonobos? And then I started looking into some of the studies of tribes in the Amazon and different parts of the world and like, wait a minute. It was as if I started pulling a thread on a tapestry and the whole thing just started to disintegrate on the wall. Greetings, dear listener. I'm your host, Ian McKenzie. My guest today is Christopher Ryan, an acclaimed author and speaker who has led a diverse and unconventional life, from working odd jobs around the world to earning a PhD in psychology and being a self-proclaimed vanthropologist. He is the host of the podcast, Tangentially Speaking, as well as the author of Civilized to Death and the co-author of Sex at Dawn, which columnist Dan Savage has called the single most important book on human sexuality since Alfred Kinsey's Sexual Behavior in the Human Male. When I read Sex at Dawn over a decade ago, it had a significant influence on my life path and approach to relationships, as you'll hear in the episode. As well, we cover Chris's own journey that inspired him to reach into the prehistory of humanity and find fresh insights into modern relationships, sexuality, 
and how remarkably similar we are to bonobos. We discuss the complex challenges for men in masculinity today, and we touch on his observations around the radical peace project of Tamara. And finally, he shares his best and only advice on how to live into the future of relationships. Before we begin, a reminder that The Mythic Masculine is now on Substack. You are welcome to become a free subscriber and gain access to all public posts and episodes. If you are financially abundant, please consider becoming a paid subscriber for $5 a month. This supports me to continue the many hours of effort it takes to research and produce each episode. I don't accept advertising and rely on listeners like you to fund the show. You'll get access to exclusive posts, episode transcripts, and more. Visit themythicmasculine.com supporter to join. And now, enjoy my conversation with Christopher Ryan. Welcome, Chris, to the show. Thanks. Good to be here. I'd love to ask uh, if you could share a little of where you are in this moment, geographically, you know, physically, spiritually, just some, some way of attuning the listener just to, yeah, to you in this moment. I am in a tiny, freaky little town called Crestone, Colorado, which sits at 8,000 feet at the base of the Sangre de Cristo mountain range, which features <clears throat> a series of 14,000 foot peaks right out my backyard. It's a pretty crazy place. It's at the end of a road, so nobody comes here by accident. It's the only place in North America that has a permit to conduct open air cremations. So residents of the town can be burned in the desert when they die, if, if they choose to be. There are three Tibetan stupas and a Middle Eastern ziggurat <coughs> and about 20 spiritual centers here and mm. probably 5,000 residents. So you can be sitting at the one cafe in town and have a yak farmer at the table to your right and Tibetan Zen meditation teachers at the table to your left. It's just a totally unique place. And I've been living here for off and on for about four years. And my partner and I bought a house in January and moved in in April. So we're in kind of a uh, half constructed cabin that we, that we bought from a guy who kind of freaked out and, <laughs> and left town after half building his house. <laughs> so that's where I am. <laughs> wow. The very potent description. <laughs> How does one such as you and, and your partner find yourself to a place like this? Like it seems, you know, not, not quite accidental if you're drawn to this kind of place as well. No, no one, no one is here accidentally. That's one of the unique features of the place. Everyone who's here has a story about how they got here. In my case, I was living in Spain. I lived in Barcelona for a long time and probably 2008 or so. I read an article in, I think it was outside magazine, but may have been something else, but the article was you know, five funky little towns in North America that you've never heard of. And, mm -hmm. you know, it was a paragraph on each town and one of them was Crestone. And I was struck by the, um, the story of the town. I won't go into it in depth because it would take, you know, our whole 
our whole allotted time here. But basically what happened was this very wealthy couple bought a company and part of the holdings of the company were this giant ranch, 40,000 acres or something like that. And that the holdings of the ranch included the area around this tiny little town. And the couple came here just to check it out. And the woman said, I want to live here. This place is awesome. And she was kind of into spiritual energy kind of stuff. And I guess she felt some sort of energetic resonance with the place. So they built a house here. And then a guy came out of the woods who had been living in a cave for years. And he knocked on the door and he said, hey, glad you guys finally arrived. And they're like, what are you talking about? And he said, well, the prophecy. And they're like, what prophecy? Oh, yeah, you guys <laughs> were supposed to buy this and then grant tracts of land to world religions so they would build spiritual centers and demonstrate that the world's religions could live together in harmony. That's the prophecy. And... So the woman, the guy was a business guy. The guy, I, I think he was like, yeah, it's a bunch of bullshit. But the woman was like, all right, I'm going to look into this. So she consulted local shamans from the, the tribes uh, who live in this area. And they all said, yeah, that's that's the both the history and the prophecy of the valley. This is a place where the different tribes have lived together in peace because it was considered a spiritual kind of non-residential area where people came for vision quests and things like that. And anyway, so long story, a little less long, the woman, her name is Hannah Strong and her husband, Maurice, uh, set up a nonprofit and ended up granting significant tracts of land to various established world religions, primarily uh, Buddhist lineages and Hindu and Carmelite nuns and, and various other Zen Buddhists. And they built retreat centers here. And so people from all over the world come here to learn meditation or to do, you know, six month silence retreat, solitude in one of the cabins up in the mountains. And so it's a pretty awesome place. So I read about that and they, they mentioned that. And they also mentioned the, it's called the end of life project where People wanted to be cremated in nature, not in some concrete, you know, bunker in, in the city, but on a pyre, you know, the way it's done in India and, and Tibet and various parts of the world. And some local people, one of the, the main guy, Paul Kloppenberg, I had on my podcast, and he applied for a permit and went, jumped through the hoops and then they built a pyre out in the desert. And anyway, I read about that and I thought, okay, this place, I'm not like a, I'm not a particularly spiritual person in terms of organized religion or, you know, daily meditation practice or any of that. But I, I thought, well, if I'm ever in North America again, I'd like to check this place out because it sounds like sort of the best things about America, the sort of free thinking, um, alternative, uh, you know, the space for alternative community, that kind of thing. And lo and behold, six, seven years later, here I was in America traveling around in a van and I thought, oh, I want to check that place out. And so I came, checked it out and, one thing led to another. I ended up buying some land here and it's super cheap. I mean, you know, it's like you can buy a few acres and put it on your credit card. It's crazy how inexpensive <laughs> it is. 
So, yeah. So anyway, one thing led to another and Mm -hmm. here I am. Well, it strikes me as part of your work has been to look, look back, it seems to see, you know, kind of, how did we get here? Make sense of it. You know, two books, of course, that come to mind, one, which we'll probably spend a good amount of time talking about, Sex at Dawn, which uh, certainly had an impact on me when that was uh, released. I believe it was 2010. And then you've also followed that up with Civilized to Death, What We Lost on Our Way to Modernity, I think is one of the variations on the title. And so it seems to be yeah, this, this like, in, in this look back, right, of be like, wait a second, what, what, what were we like? Or what, how did we live? How do you look at the water we swim in? differently, because I think this is so much right of how hard it is often to be in a culture where it just seems like it's just the way it is, and maybe it's always been, to be able to look back to other eras and to say, wait a second, you know, what did we do well? Or how is that? how might that explain the dysfunction or the challenges that we actually have today in modern times? Would that be sort of an accurate characteristic in some ways of at least one of the attempts you've made in your in your career? Yeah, sure. I, I think you know, you can't possibly know where you are or how to navigate into the future if you don't have an accurate understanding of where you came from and what your trajectory mm-hmm. is. So, yeah, that, mm-hmm. that's that been the, the focus of my work. And, you know, I, it started a long time ago when I was probably about 20 years old, and, and I realized that the big question for me this is long before I thought of writing books or whatever, but the big question for me was to distinguish what is personal from what is cultural from what is universally human, right? These three different realms of meaning. And I, I realized at a, at a quite young age that understanding that would be very helpful to sort of keeping myself from getting on the wrong track or wasting my life in something that was meaningless. Because um, from a very young age, I felt uncomfortable in American culture. So I had a very kind of clear Mm. delineation between like, okay, wait, the culture is telling me I should care about this, but I really don't, you know, whether it's Mm. the Protestant work ethic or, you know, football or, you know, mowing the lawn really well, or, you know, I don't know, whatever it was. I was very interested in Native American cultures. It was my first um, intellectual passion. So from the time I was probably 11 till I was 15 and, you know, had my first girlfriend, all I cared about was American Indians. You know, and then in my teens, later in my teens in college, I got into psychedelics. And I think that also opened a door into these sorts of questions of, okay, wait a minute. What is, what's coming from me? What's coming from the culture and what's coming from the DNA, from the, the, the organism, right? From the sort of collective unconscious, if if you want to get into Jungian terms, which I imagine you do at some point. But, and all of these are, are important mythological questions that can be understood in terms of, mm. um, you know, whether it's the collective unconscious or the hero with a thousand faces, the prodigal son, you know, all these stories. I, I saw on your website, you talked about how in your own experience, there was this sort of, you know, going out and exploring the world and 
looking for yourself out there. And I think you were in Australia uh, at one point, there was a photo of you with a kangaroo sign. And, and then you said, you know, and then I came home and saw, okay, that what I've been looking for all along was with me, right? This is the oldest story there is. This is the Odyssey, you know, this is what Joseph Campbell spoke about. You know, looking at the past, but always with the intention of better understanding the present, not just to, mm. I don't consider myself a historian or, you know, an evolutionary scientist or anything. It's, it's more like, okay, what is, how is the present reflected in the past? And for me, the, the most useful and I think profound reflection is in the deep past, because that gets into mm. this thing of what is human. You know, not what is American or what is European or, you know, what is capitalist, but what is human? Uh, to me, that's the most interesting question. Mm. Thank you. A few threads there. I mean, one, you mentioned uh, Native American. You know, here in Canada, we tend to say First Nations. This fascination I see that you, you know, were expressing as a child. And I'm curious, when did that transition to almost like a, felt like yeah, an academic inquiry versus a maybe a, a kind of romantic inquiry, right? Where you said, okay, wait a second, you know, there's clearly some sense of maybe that, you know, a close a closer relationship to the earth or, you know, hearkening back to some pre industrial way of being that seems somehow more sane. Like when did that start to maybe come become more clear to you that you seem to have then dove in to that inquiry in a more sort of structured way, right? In a more uh, way to tr truly understand, like how were these cultures and why did they, how did they structure themselves? And how was that uh, maybe an attempt to live these questions as well? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I'm not sure I have a very clear answer. I would say my, my interest in, um, in other approaches to life, uh, sort of non-standard American, you know, the approach that I grew up in never waned. I spent my twenties backpacking around the world. Um, and very interested in, in other cultures, whether, you know, India or Nepal or Mexico or, you know, wherever it was that I, I just wanted to see as much as I could and, and try to, again, disentangle this question of what is human from what is cultural, right? So a very good way of doing that is to put yourself in other cultures. And I think Joseph Campbell used the term detribalization. And I think that was what I was trying to do. I was trying to detribalize to, to be, you know, sort of worldly enough to recognize, oh, that's the American part of you talking. That's the culture that you grew up in, that's the bias. That's where that comes from. That's not human, right? Because I've been in these other places where that's not, you know, how men behave or how women behave or, or you know, whatever expectations. So that was always sort of there. And But then I would say for a while, psychedelics and ethnobotany and sort of the exploration of, of consciousness became sort of primary for me in some ways. But then of course that ties into ethnobotany and, and this exploration of consciousness ties directly into that question, right? Because now you're saying, okay, well, what are people in the Amazon who are using ayahuasca connecting to? Is that 
a universally human realm that they're tapping into, or is that something that's culturally based, right? And, and this is way before Iowa, anyone knew what ayahuasca was, right? I'm, I'm kind of a, an elder of the psychedelic movement at this point, I guess. So I was interested in this mm. stuff in the eighties. You know, there was no, I mean, Rick Doblin, I met Rick in probably 98 or so. And even then, uh, you know, it, it was like, do you know who I'm talking about? Rick Doblin, the head of maps. Mm, yeah. Maps. Yeah. Yep. You know, even, even in, in the late nineties, it was like, okay, Rick, you know, I admire you, but this is never going to work. And then here we are 20 years <laughs> later, like, holy shit. You know, he's hosting conferences in Vegas or, or in Denver or whatever it was <laughs> last week is crazy. Anyway, I'm mm -hmm. um, getting off the point. So, then I got very interested in sexuality, which again is something that's experienced by human, human, humans universally, but also through a cultural prism and then through a personal prism, right? So it's, it's another avenue to study this three layered question of, you know, universal, cultural and personal. So I think I was sort of mm -hmm. circling around this question, but looking at it from different perspectives, consciousness, sexuality, anthropological interest. And then when it became a, you know, concrete, um, sort of organized intellectual pursuit would have been when I decided to do my, uh, doctoral dissertation on human sexual evolution. And look at the anthropological, primatological, anatomical, physiological evidence um, to try to get a clear sense of how humans evolved sexually, what sort of animal we are relative to other primates and other mammals. So at that point, it became a sort of a systematic study, primarily about sexuality, but of course, you know, because it's such a nuanced issue and I'm looking at prehistory, then of course I'm looking at anthropological studies and, and first contact accounts and all this evidence to try to distinguish, okay, what is human? You know, what do the Inuits have in, in common with uh, the Canela of the upper Amazon and people in Papua New Guinea? Because only by finding these commonalities can we determine what is likely to be a human universal. Thanks for that background. You know, when I encountered the book, I think it was fairly soon after it had been released. So maybe within the first year, this is Sex at Dawn now. And I'll say for me, and again, I'm curious to hear a bit how it, it seemed to be the cultural impact for you uh, as the author and, and co-author, um, that for me, it was very much a, a almost like I, I was looking at the time for, I mean, something that helped me explain what I was grappling with, right? In this case, relationally i was married at the time we had a lot of trouble with conceiving and that's like a whole other kind of story around it but we'd been trying for you know three or four years and there was a, a whole you know ivf cycle there was a whole you know that whole that whole journey we went on and ultimately she just wasn't it just wasn't happening and so that op opened up possibilities of you know we'd encountered at that point also burning man and like other cultural you know ways of doing relationship and so when that book came along, and for me, it was very much like it felt validating of, of a sense of wanting to f not feel like a deviant, <laughs> right? That's maybe one way I could like distill it down. Cause I was like, wait a second, you know, because in the dominant culture of society, yeah, a lot of the 
the, the alternative ways of doing things, it can be very difficult. I mean, maybe even less so now, you know, things have moved along even more, but this is, you know, a decade ago, but it really was validating to be like, wait a second. Yeah. You know, are humans built for, you know, multiple partnerships? Are they like, how do we, uh, how do, how do humans handle this when it's a more egalitarian society? When, you know, the, the idea of pair bonding, you know, monogamous marriage for life just like wasn't part of the equation. So in a sense, I'm saying I was looking for something that confirmed my, a, a sense that I wanted to understand or to integrate around relationships. Now, I'm curious for you as well, like you, your own relational, you know, dynamics that may have been at play, like how did that play into a desire to work on the book? Uh, you know, because I, I get the impression it wasn't necessarily a purely intellectual pursuit, that there was probably some aspect of you as well trying to work out, you know, what what was it that you wanted to know about maybe yourself, right? And also how that intersected with cultural norms and expectations. Yeah, I uh, I had gone through a couple of relationships in my 20s um, that were very deep and intense and loving, and yet I felt unfulfilled and um, confused because um, the women were wonderful and the relationship was wonderful. And uh, objectively, I couldn't really f see any reason. I, I, f I felt like I was being very nitpicky. And, um, and I had a conversation with a guy a friend of mine in San Francisco, when I was living there, I was in graduate school at the time, and I was living with a Spanish woman who had come to San Francisco with me. And, um, you know, she's awesome. She's, she's just awesome. She's funny and self-deprecating and gorgeous and just smart and speaks five languages. And she's just an awesome woman. And we were sitting, I, I, I'll always remember this. This was like a pivotal moment in my life. And I was, I was with him. We were sitting at a bar on South Haight or, or Lower Haight. It's called, called, it begins with a T. I don't know. People who, who live around there know what I'm talking about. It's like a dark dive bar. I don't even know if it's still there, but anyway, we're sitting mm -hmm. in there and I was, I was bitching about something, you know, whatever the problem was. And I remember him reaching across the table and touching my chest, which was not normal behavior for him at all. And because he was a very gentle guy, but this was kind of a weirdly confrontational thing for him to do. He reached across the table, he touched my chest and he said, Chris, I'm sorry, dude. I'm sorry. She's the most amazing woman I've ever been in a room with. I can't listen to you complain about this. And in that moment, I, I saw myself as the millionaire bitching about taxes. You know, I was, I was so lucky and so ungrateful. And I just saw how ugly that was in that moment through his eyes, you know, and that set me off on thinking a lot about what is going on here. Why am I happy? Cause he's right. She's amazing. And eventually, then I, I read shortly thereafter an essay. This is when the internet was still young and innocent. <laughs> Salon.com uh, was, was something I, I used to read. This is like probably 95, 96, 97, I don't know, somewhere in there. 
And John Perry Barlow, who was a lyricist for the Grateful Dead and, and one of the early sort of internet philosopher pioneers, he published an essay and it was, it was a brief essay, but it was sort of about his romantic history. And I think the title was something like A Lady's Man and Shameless. And essentially, he went through talking about how, <clears throat> you know, he had been married, but he cheated on his wife, and that ended up in a bitter divorce. And then he fell in love with another woman and decided that the way to have a successful relationship was to, like, go and buy a ranch in Wyoming in the middle of nowhere where there wouldn't be any women around to tempt him and and they'd be happy and, you know, live this rustic existence. And then that didn't work out. And then he fell in love with this other woman, this young woman who died suddenly unexpectedly and broke his heart and totally destroyed him. And and eventually he he came to the conclusion like, I just I love women too much to to commit myself forever to only one woman. Like this doesn't, doesn't make sense for me. And I keep trying to do it and it keeps ending up in disaster. And it's not the woman's fault. And it's not even my fault. It's that we're trying to do this thing that just doesn't come naturally to me. And I keep fucking it up. So I read that essay and I was like, God damn, that, that, makes sense to me. That's me. Now, I never cheated on anyone. I, I'm i like super, uh, you know, kind of ethical as far as that goes. But unless you consider, you know, thinking about other women being cheating or looking at porn or something, which some people do, in that case, guilty as charge. But, um, you know, I read that essay and it was the first time I'd ever read someone who wasn't, who wasn't like, you know, making excuses, who was just saying, all right, look, this is who I am. This is how I am. And it's not that I disrespect women. It's the opposite. I love women and I'm tired of pretending I don't. And yeah, so that really resonated for me. And it, it, it gave me the perspective to look back at these relationships and say, yeah, of course, I've been looking for flaws in these women or in our relationship because I wasn't comfortable turning in my passport and saying, I'll never go anywhere else ever again, you know, and, and I'm traveling all over the world at this point and I'm super sort of open and, and ravenous for experience. And so the idea of limiting my erotic experience to one person for the rest of my life was just, terrifying, but because it was so ubiquitous until I was 32 or something, it didn't even occur to me like, wait a minute, I don't need to do this. You know, this is cultural. Mm. This isn't coming from me personally, and it's not a human universal. And so that led me to be interested in this, this question of where does monogamy come from, this expectation of monogamy? You know, what's the the evidence for this am i am i a very flawed character is this some sort of like psychological damage that i'm trying to deal with in this way so i the first thing that happened is i read a book i, I was already in grad school and i already was a year into a totally different dissertation topic having nothing to do with anthropology or sexuality or anything 
And I read a book called The Moral Animal by Robert Wright, mm. who subsequently I've I've spoken with a few times. I've had him on my podcast and I've been on his. And I it was a fantastic book. It's it was about the new science of evolutionary psychology. I think it was published in 92, somewhere around there, maybe. And he delineates this at that time new way of thinking, which is that evolution, Darwinian selection and all that not only shaped our body, uh, but it also shaped our behavior and the way we think and sort of, you know, cognitive modules that, that exist in our consciousness, sort of the way organs exist in our body. And the argument of that book and of evolutionary psychology in general is that men and women are sort of fated to have constantly be in conflict because we have opposing reproductive agendas. You know, I'm sure all your listeners are familiar with this argument, which is basically that, you know, women are looking for a man who's going to be a provider, who's going to stick around, who's going to take care of them and bring them food and protection and, you know, all these sorts of things. And men, on the other hand, because women can get pregnant and they're very vulnerable and, you know, they have to breastfeed and on and on. On the other hand, men, you know, come in 15 seconds and we're on our way. There's no investment. So minimal parental investment of the men is very low and the minimal parental investment of the women is very high. And so that sort of creates these, you know, we're destined to be in this constant struggle. And I, I read this book and I thought it made perfect sense. It was fantastic. It explained everything. At the time I was living with a stripper in San Francisco and um, I started proselytizing about this book with her and all her friends. And, you know, San Francisco strippers are very smart women. They're yeah, most of them are lesbians too. I hate to tell you guys, but you know, this was like a very intellectual, self-aware, outspoken group of women. And pretty much without exception, they said to me, Chris, uh, I love you, dude, but that's a bunch of bullshit. That's, that's a Victorian male phallocentric way of looking at female sexuality. You know, we only trade sex for stuff because the culture makes us. We don't want to do that. We have sex because it feels good. In fact, it feels better for us than it does for you. I can have five orgasms. What about you? You know, like, and they sort of presented this to me and I was like, damn, they're, they make some good points. So I went back and started looking into the original source material that Wright had used in the book and I found bonobos. And at that point, nobody was talking about bonobos. This was, you know, way before bonobos were cool. I had never heard of bonobos and like, okay, so this guy's talking about chimpanzees through the whole book, but he doesn't mention bonobos, which are equally relevant to any kind of discussion of human evolved tendencies because we share the same amount of DNA. They're equidistant in terms of, you know, evolutionary trajectory and bonobos are the opposite of monogamous. They're totally free love. Anybody can have sex with anybody who's down for it except mother-son. It's the only combination mother-son is the only one that doesn't happen. Same-sex stuff happens. In fact, the female-to-female -female is called GG rubbing is the most popular, most frequent sexual interaction between them. Anyway, I read that and I was like, well, why the hell weren't they mentioned? How come I've never heard of bonobos? 
And then I started looking into some of the studies of tribes in the Amazon and different parts of the world. And like, wait a minute, these people believe a baby can have five different fathers and all the men consider themselves to be father. And they have no idea that one sex act can result in pregnancy. They think an infant or a fetus is composed of accumulated semen. So a woman who wants to have a baby who's funny and smart and a good hunter and strong will have sex with the funny guy and the strong guy and the smart guy and the good hunter guy to get the essence of all these guys. I'm reading this stuff and it's like, wait, that, what is this? It was as if I started pulling a thread on a tapestry and the whole thing just started to disintegrate on the wall. And at that point, I was like, damn, I want to keep reading this stuff. And I changed my dissertation to human sexual evolution and, you know, just dove in head first at that point. So I went into this thinking that the standard narrative made sense. It wasn't until I started digging that I was like, wait a minute. No, this standard narrative is propaganda. This isn't science. And how did it land then when it came out? Because I, I imagine, you know, uh, just from the cultural landscape, it seems somewhat unique in, like you said, somebody who's, you know, gone back and actually, you know, pulled some of these threads. I understand there was some pushback, you know, some uh, critiques were saying, well, no, we're definitely like chimps, like, forget it with the bonobo stuff or whatever it is. But that that in itself seemed to be the most, one of the most, like, key highlights that I, certainly I remember too, right, this distinction of bonobo and i understand there's even like a bonobo club or something in san francisco i think which i i imagine might have been sparked by by you know your your book but other couple highlights that you now even looking back now it's been about 12 years or so but like ones that even stick with you now as like really significant departures from you know quote the standard narrative that folks tend to encounter in in this culture oh you mean in terms of reception of the book yeah, like ones that really seem to somehow hit a note either for, you know, people saying, yeah, you know, th you know, you validated us or others saying this is dead wrong. This totally goes against, you know, what what the dominant right. theories are. Just curious to know, yeah, what were some of the ones that were highly contentious, but also, you know, that you stand by? Well, it, it's interesting. I, I mean, there the reception to the book was way more positive than I expected. I, I mean, look, I never expected the book to be published. I never expected it to be a book. I, I just wrote my dissertation and, you know, I am much more of a writer than I am a scientist. I have my undergraduate degrees in literature. I, I've always loved reading and writing and, you know, that's always sort of been a thing for me. And then I went back and did my PhD in psychology, but as I was writing my dissertation, I was being kind of playful and creative and, and the people on my committee just kept crossing out everything I did that was creative or fun or whatever. <laughs> and in the margin, they wrote, save it for the book. And at the time I was kind of pissed off, like, come on, I'm trying to make this fun for you. You know, like you got to sit there and read this thing. Why can't we have fun? And like, no, no, they just the facts. They want it dry, dissertation, science, you know. And then later, after I, I finished the PhD and, you know, then my wife and I went and traveled around Asia for a year or so backpacking. And but I kept thinking about it. I kept thinking like, like maybe it could be a book, you know, like maybe, you know, I need to learn a lot more about genetics. I need to learn more about, you know, different areas that I, you know. It's one thing to defend your dissertation in front of three or four friendly professors. It's another thing to have the entire world 
you know, looking over your shoulder and telling you how stupid you are. So I definitely needed to fill in some gaps in my knowledge. But eventually I put together a proposal, uh, not even a proposal. It was basically a query that I sent out to some literary agents in New York. I didn't know anything about publishing. I went online and I started from there, literally. But what happened was I sent out 20 email query letters um, to literary agents who had represented popular science books in the past. And, you know, I thought they're all going to say no, but maybe one or two will say, you know, you need to do more of this or you need to think about that or, you know, whatever. I sent them out on a Thursday evening, Barcelona time. By Monday morning, I had 18 offers of representation wow. of the 20 that wow. I'd sent out, including some saying, we'll fly you to New York this week, take you out to dinner and tell you why we're the best match for you. I was like, what is happening here? This is insane. And so that began just this crazy adventure. And I was, let's see, I was like 48 years old. Right. So, and I'd been teaching English for 20 euros an hour and, you know, just sort of living hand to mouth. And suddenly that happened. So that, that was crazy. And, but as far as reception goes, when the book actually came out, I remember one of the first emails that we got it was very, very brief. I said, I'm a 65 year old widow. This is the most important book I've ever read. I wish I could live my life over again. Yeah. So very early on, Casilda and I saw that this book was touching people very personally and for, for better or worse, people who hated it really, really hated it. But mm. I feel that you know, I learned, I was an adult, as I said, I was in my late forties before the book came out. So I, I was a fully formed personality and you know, all that. And I learned very early on that people have relationships with books or films or whatever. It's their relationship. It's really none of my business. Like I wrote it, I put it out there and now it's between you and the book. It's I'm over here kind of separate from what happens. So people will tell me I'm brilliant or they'll tell me I'm an idiot and it's, they both bounce off me. I don't really take either one seriously. It's like, you know, if this book, you know, as you said, it sort of explains something you're already feeling, mm -hmm. then as I think happened with a lot of people, then they tend to think it's an amazing book. And if it explains or triggers something that makes you very uncomfortable or, you know, hurts you or makes you insecure, then you'll think it's a horrible book. And I'm a horrible person. But neither one really has anything to do with me. I think some of the main threads that seem to challenge, right, certainly the, the dominant narrative are, you brought up a little bit about that, like women tend to be, you know, seeking security and more demure in their sexuality, which does seem to have this sort of hangover from Victorian era, you know, impositions. But then also for me, I think what stands out as well is this link to, I think it was the advent of marriage or, or sort of the ownership, a model within a marriage that it's was sort of a parallel growth or coming from a shift to agricultural civilization, 
where then there's a accumulation of surplus and then surplus, you know, i.e. family value or wealth, you know, needed to be passed down the paternal line. And so now it became very important to know, you know, who's your actual blood, you know, children, yada, yada. So there's this shift that goes on. And then of course that has its own kind of reformation of what is human nature, you know, innately that that gets now put on sort of dominant narratives because of now, you know, being in that for so long, I mean, say 500 years or so plus in just the modern agriculture era that now it's just seems self-evident. Oh yeah. You know, humans are always this way or relationships are always like this or ideal forms of relating, you know, the pair bond, the romantic monogamous pair bond, that's the ideal form. And so I think the book really offers this, this, you know, I don't know, opening of, well, this is the context in which we happen to exist here. And therefore, perhaps that's one of the reasons why this is me now translating, right? This is why certain things seem to be a given, but in a completely different context, certain behaviors now make other behaviors make a lot more sense. For example, I think there were some stories stays with me of a you know, indigenous culture where, you know, the, the pair bond marriage situation was simply a woman would hang her hammock next to the man that she liked for that period of time. And then maybe when it's time to move on, it's like just moves the hammock. You know, it's not this devastating blow to ego or life and splitting up the kids and, you know, all the mayhem that ensues because of the ways in which we hold some some kind of containership. So this is what I wanted to maybe tease apart a bit of uh, what became now more clear by this look back and how has that actually illuminated certain ec- expectations of you know how men are, how women are, what is ideal in terms of relationship? Yeah, I'd love to spend a bit of time there looking at these questions. Yeah, the the passage that you're talking about is from a section about mating, marriage, and monogamy. I think it's like making a mess of mating, marriage, and monogamy, or something like that. And <laughs> that was where we <clears throat> we looked at you know some of these statements that you'll read like that all marriage is ubiquitous in all human cultures. So somebody who wants to dismiss sex at dawn will say, oh, that's ridiculous. Like every anthropologist who's ever studied any culture has always found marriage. And so we look back and, and, you know, looked at the original source material. And what you find is that the anthropologist, because the anthropologist comes from a culture that practices marriage that they tend to see it wherever they look, right? It's it's that old adage about if you're walking around with a hammer, you see nails everywhere, right? So if you come from a particular cultural background, you tend to project the values and habits and all that onto the the canvases that, that you see. And so we we looked at this and we said, okay, here the this is a culture that's considered to, you know, practice marriage. Well, what is marriage? What do they mean? And so we looked at the, you know, the PhD dissertations or the, you know, published papers of anthropologists and they said, well, okay, I know those two people are married because she put her hammock next to his. So now they're married. Well, was there a ritual? Was there a ceremony? No. Is there any expectation that that man is going to help raise those children? No. Was there any exchange of money or promises of fidelity? No. Well, then how the fuck are you calling that marriage? Just because you, that's the word in your language, you're slapping it on there and saying, well, see, they've got marriage too. Well, that's ridiculous. You know, and then she, after a while, they, they decide they're sick of each other and she goes and puts her 
hammock next to some other guys and oh now they're divorced and she's married him i mean that's ridiculous but that's what the anthropology is right so i think people don't realize how how science particularly the soft sciences of of anthropology in this case are so easily shaped to cultural expectation and you know so that's uh, a big issue there yeah. So yeah, making a mess of marriage, mating and monogamy. Monogamy is another one, right? They, you know, I remember when I was writing the book, this film, The March of the Penguins came out and it was a huge hit all over. And like churches in the US were renting cinemas so they could take the whole congregation in and watch this movie. And it was all about celebrating monogamy and how these penguins would, you know, team up and the male would trudge across the tundra and, and go fishing and then, you know, trudge back and vomit up his fish for the baby or the female or whatever. And, you know, and they take turns sitting on the egg, this precious egg and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I looked into that and I, I found out, okay, wait a minute, emperor penguins, they only mate for one breeding season. So, so this isn't monogamy. This is just that particular winter and they live into their late 20s. They reach sexual maturity around five. So these penguins that all these churches are going to, you know, praise in, in the, the rented cinemas, they have about 20 different sexual partners in a, in a lifetime, right? So again, there's this weird kind of cherry picking and, you know, selective presentation of partial evidence in order to support a very particular narrative. And now, of course, my argument is I went back and looked at the evidence, Casilda and I later, when she became involved in the book, looked at all this evidence, and we came to the conclusion that this is propaganda. Now, the propagandists will say, no, no, you're the ones who are cherry picking. So, you know, it's obviously there's a, a difference of opinion there. But I think a book like Sex at Dawn should be impossible to write if the standard narrative were true. There wouldn't be so many exceptions to all these different points that we made. You know, you, you mentioned er, your earlier question about reception and things that stand out that there was you know, the book won the book of the year award from the American Society of Sex Researchers and the, the major sex and relationship professional organizations just loved the book and, and invited us to conferences and gave us awards and all this kind of stuff. The people who hated the book were the sort of conventional academic um, community who I think looked at us and, and totally understandably, but looked at us and said, who the hell are you? And where did you go to graduate <laughs> school? And how come I've never heard of you? And you're selling more books than I am. And you're giving Ted talks and I've never been invited. And there was a lot of like rage and I, I get it. I get it. Like we, you know, I didn't pay my dues in that respect, you know, the way someone who went mm -hmm. to Harvard and sort of, you know, checked all the right boxes, did but there was a there was a an article in the the chronicle of higher education that that kind of exemplifies what i'm talking about by a man named david barish 
who had written several books about evolutionary psychology and human mating and, and even a book, I think there's a book called The Myth of Monogamy that he had written, um, which when it came out, I thought, oh shit, that's now I'm not going to be able to finish this book because somebody else already wrote it, right? And then I read the book and it was all about how monogamy isn't really that ubiquitous in the animal kingdom, but humans, yes, for sure, humans. So luckily I could still continue with Sexaton. But he wrote this takedown. He said this, he literally, this is in an academic, you know, publication. The first line of the article is, if one more person asks me about this book, Sex at Dawn, I'm going to vomit. And then, and then he goes through and he says, these people know nothing about evolution. They've misrepresented the science. They're, you know, trying to promote their deviant lifestyle. It just like took every shot you could possibly take, but there was not one example, not one example mm. of how we misrepresented the science or how we got evolution wrong or any, there was no example. It was just outrage, you know, and people wrote to me and said, oh, you should write a, a rejoinder. You should like, and I just thought there's no point. There's no point because- as I said earlier, this is someone's emotional response to an argument. It's not an argumentative response. It's not a an intellectual response. So luckily, I mm. I didn't engage in those sorts of things. <laughs> well, what, I'm curious to know now to turn to masculinity. What did you or how do you now translate or understand how masculinity shifts and changes and is re deeply related. This is now what I'm imagining. This is what I've seen too in my podcast is how does masculinity now uh, relate to the context in which it's it's called for or required or shunned and shamed, whatever that is. Because again, there seems to be often right this sort of yearning for a, a kind of universal noble masculinity. Uh, yeah. And at the same time seems to stymie a lot of the conversations of you know, how do we, is it the divine masculine? You know, that's the template or whatever it is. Or even in a traditional, by that meaning, sort of right wing, more traditional, you know, male is a provider, male is, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I'm curious for you as you're studying as well, these, you know, cultural models, really, how did masculinity begin to look different to you? Or how do you now understand that how it evolves and shifts depending on the context? Yeah, I think, I think there are some universal characteristics of masculinity. And of course, you know, the declaimer disclaimer is that at least the way I define it, masculinity is a, a sort of energetic resonance that exists in, in all people, just as femininity does. So it's not exclusive to men. I think it tends to be more pronounced in men. But these energies also exist in women and, and non-binary people in, in all sorts of different ways. So having said that, I would say that I think that some of the universal qualities of, of masculinity would be uh, a willing willingness to take risk, um, to contemplate self-sacrifice. Because the fact is, you know, getting down to the biological, men are not particularly necessary to continue a community or a species 
uh, on a biological level, right? I mean, if there's a community of, you know, 50 people, uh, and all but one of the men dies in some horrible accident, that one man can impregnate all the women, you know, generally, biologically speaking. Whereas the opposite, if all the women die, there's only one woman, well, you're only going to have one baby every couple of years at the most, right? So in terms of survival of a group, it makes sense that the males, and not just men and humans, but males of, of most mammalian species, are more engaged in dangerous activities and conflict and, you know, hunting and things like that, where things can go wrong because they're more expendable just from a purely evolutionary perspective. And so I, I do think that that is probably something that is approaching universal as far as masculine energy goes. I personally think that that kind of willingness to take risk and self-sacrifice and that kind of energy can be expressed in humor. I think that's part of humor. You know, you risk looking stupid when you make a joke. You risk humiliating yourself. You, you know, it's kind of a, I don't give a damn, I'm going to try it anyway kind of approach to life. So I don't think it's only in, you know, macho things like, you know, driving a truck and having a gun, I think it, it can also just be sense of humor. It can be, you know, willingness to to have a difficult conversation with someone, which I think obviously women are totally capable of doing as well. But I do think there's something like, I'll take the consequences. There's something masculine about, I'll do the right thing and take the consequences. And I feel like we live in a very difficult time right now for masculinity because I feel like our culture in North America is very, is having a real hard time understanding masculinity and finding healthy expressions. And so, you know, there's so much shaming, so much toxic masculinity, so much condemnation of man spreading and mansplaining and, you know, the, dumb father on TV shows who just is a total doofus and messes everything up. And the wife and the kids all think he's an idiot, but they just put up with him. And there's this cultural narrative, you know, that men are kind of just useless, idiotic, you know, farting, snoring Homer Simpsons. And so I think for young men, it's, it's very difficult when you combine that cultural narrative with the economic reality that it's very difficult for your average young man to find a way to make a meaningful living that can support a family. They're graduating thousands of dollars in debt and they're, you know, it's, you can't buy a house and raise kids on your average you know, blue collar salary. I think when you combine that narrative and that context, you get a lot of anger, a lot of shame, shame and anger basically being the same thing, just expressed in two different keys, you know, and you get, you know, you get a market for people uh, with false corrosive messages for young men like Andrew Tate, who tell men that that, you know, the right way to 
approach life is to disrespect women. I mean, Jordan Peterson, you know, women are irrational by nature, or it's, you know, the, the, the way of the superior man. I, I sent you my little rant about that book where, you know, I know a lot of people find that to be helpful. And there, and then there's good information on that. But again, it's like, you know, women can't be trusted. They're just so, they're driven by their hormones. You can't, can't deal with them. You can't take them seriously. You know, or it's a hip hop culture, you know, women, women are just bitches and it's all about, you know, turning them out and, and you don't take them seriously. It's just another currency, which is very Old Testament, by the way. You know, it's amazing how Too Short and Snoop Dogg are basically wrapping Old Testament beliefs about how, you know, women are men's property and not to be taken seriously. And, you know, you slap a bitch if she says anything you don't like. And it's like, wow, okay, that goes right back 2000 years to thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his house, nor his ox, nor his manservant, you know? It's like, don't covet thy neighbor's stuff. And his wife is just part of his stuff. So don't covet his stuff. So yeah, I think we're in a difficult place where young men are looking for guidance and, you know, how do I integrate these feelings that I have and this willingness for sacrifice and 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 this yearning for meaning and this yearning to provide some kind of meaningful helpful presence for a woman or 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 a community and yet I'm I'm handicapped by lack of access to resources by lack of respect from the culture and you know I don't know what to do and so that gets turned inward as rage and, and erupts as either violence or addiction or, you know, chronic disease or all sorts of things that are definitely not healthy. I was struck by, again, this context of, of it feels like, you know, a kind of hyper-capitalism, right? Or higher, the hierarchy of capitalism as so much of the context in which, you know, masculinity is trying to figure out figure itself out or assert itself and so so much right. of the like you mentioned andrew tate and my understanding is so much of the response then for folks like that is to say okay here's how you establish yourself more strongly in the hierarchy right but not how you step out of that because obviously right. the context it doesn't doesn't exit that that social construct right now i'm curious just as a segue now to the film that I spent eight years crafting with uh, my co-directors about a place in Portugal called Tamara. And, you know, those on the podcast have heard me talk about it, you know, in different ways. Some may have seen the film by now, you know, we're still touring in different pockets. Uh, it hasn't had a major global release yet. You know, we're building to that, but you have seen the film. And this is one curiosity I have is, you know, even as I reflect now, as I read Sex at Dawn, and then what I experienced in a place like Tamara, which in many ways is a different context it's a very different social context which which seems to be much more akin to these these like pre-capitalist or you could say post-capitalist in some ways experiments in a more egalitarian society where a lot of the markers of hierarchy and competition and all that they make zero sense right in in a different social context but I, yeah i'm just curious to get your read of of was that stuff kind of swimming alive for you as you saw you know the the ways of the interactions they'd structured yeah uh, just anything that that feels interesting to you to share. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed the film and I hope people will check it out when they have a chance. It's it's a fascinating look at a community that's very, very intentional, very 
what's the word I'm looking for? They're, they're, you know, p- people always say, well, you know, these, you know, these communes didn't work out. The sixties were a failure. Uh, you know, all these hippies thought they were going to go back to the land. And it was all a disaster. And it turns out that, that the percentage of intentional communities that succeed is about the same as the, in, the percentage of startups that succeed. Right. But nobody says, Oh, you know, nobody's going to start up any companies anymore. That never works out. You know, it's like, it's so funny how society is just like wants to just trash anything that questions the standard narrative, just trash it. It's nonsense. It's ridiculous. You know, whereas you look into the numbers and you find out, oh, wait a minute, this doesn't make any sense at all. So I, I think Tamara is a, an example of a place that's been around for a long time. They've, they've been very, sort of careful and intentional and, and built the community in a sense of integrity. And, you know, people are going to be very quick to say, Oh, it's like a free love community. It's a, you know, a bunch of orgiastic. Whereas that's not the point at all. The point is no, there is no, it's, it's like sex at dawn. A lot of people say, Oh, sex at dawn. You know, I don't want some book telling me how to run my marriage. Sex at dawn doesn't give any advice whatsoever other than be honest about your feelings, right? The the book doesn't at any point say, you know, oh, we should all be swingers or we should all, you know, go go live at Tamara. Like, there's none of that. It's just saying, you know, what kind of animal are you and your partner? And once you understand that, maybe you'll have more compassion and you'll have more capacity to be honest with yourself and with him or her about you know, how we're going to do this and make it work for all of us. Right. And I think Tamara is the same. It's, it's no, nobody at Tamara says, Oh, well, you're, you know, welcome Tamara. Now you have to have sex with, you know, 10 people. And it's not that kind of place. It's just, we're open to talking about what's real here. A, a wonderful constitutional foundation for a community. And if, you know, I was, I was doing a podcast the other day, there's, sort of, there's a psychotherapist who's in his early thirties. And he said, look, would you be willing to do a podcast where you sort of mentor me? And I just ask you a bunch of questions, you know, and I think your audience would find it useful. And and so we were doing that. And he was saying, you know, I'm thinking about getting married and I'm terrified about making a commitment. I really love this woman, but I have enough patience that I see what goes wrong. I see people don't, don't know what's coming in 10 years and they back themselves into a corner they can't get out of. And I don't want to do that, but I really feel like I want to make a commitment. And what I said to him was don't commit to a particular, um, scenario or a particular, um, behavior. Commit to a set of values. Right. Because those values can express themselves in different ways, in different contexts. Whereas if you say, I will never be attracted to another person because right now I'm not. Well, that's a dumb thing to say. Right. You don't Mm -hmm. know that you can't control that. But what you can say is if I ever am attracted to another person, I will be open and honest with you about it. And I won't let it fester and become a source of resentment and conflict you know, that my heart and eroticism will be open for discussion that you can commit to even without knowing what's coming in the future, because all you're committing to is saying, I will be in my integrity no matter what. 
So watching that film, I felt like that was sort of the way Tamara was organized and, and that they weren't saying we will always do X or Y. They were saying we'll always try to deal with situations with openness and, and integrity. And I've never been there. I've been invited a bunch of times, but never managed to go. But I'm sure they have all mm. sorts of problems and things, that, you know, messes that, mm. that occur like any other community. But if you're committed to those principles, you have a better chance of working through them. Mm -hmm. Well, this brings up as well their one of their main, well, both theses and, and orientations is this practice of the liberation of eros. Right. This, which they translate as sexual energy as part of it, but it's not all of it. Right. We tend to think of that, I think, in this, this culture, right? As it's just sexual love. But for them, it's this vitality of life itself. And so, how to organize a society that actually allows that eros to flow and to nourish not just the human culture, but also the land. That's a big piece, right? They've, they've regenerated the landscape. Yeah. So, this question for me, you know, as I look at the dominant cultural context, it seems like, and I, I do believe you, you probably mentioned this, I think, in the book, but it's like, so much of the structures of relating uh, end up, you know, just creating a lot of like uh, repression, then leading to, you know, massive breaks of trust and betrayal and secrecy between couples. And it just seems that the, the, the entire matrix is often stifling or, or improperly kind of directing the flow of, of Eros, which is life energy, at least according to, you know, Tamara and, and other understandings of this. And so, my question is, you know, for folks then that just kind of swing the other side, which is what I did right after my marriage ended, I was like, okay, F this, you know, I'm going fully into the other end of the spectrum. And I was in a polyamorous relationship for five years. We were fully open, like no restrictions, you know, a lot of mistakes made, uh, a lot of learnings. And it was clear as well how difficult that is to live in a culture where you don't have the support structures of, for example, other people in solidarity with you, uh, you know, living on land together, really digging in, right, and really supporting each other in this way. And so, so often I think polyamory, as it's practiced outside of that kind of supportive context, kind of thinks itself as a true alternative, when in fact, often many of the same problems just get magnified again. And I wonder, again, with your book, for example, Sex of Dawn, I think I recall actually the last image I think you said something like, you know, here we are standing, you know, hand in hand, sort of looking out at the great blue sky or of possibility or something like that, right? Some some imaginal image that's saying, well, I don't know what you're going to do with this, this learning of, of what we just offered, but, you know, co-create something beautiful is sort of, you know, what I, what I felt you deliberately left them with. You didn't say, so you better go be polyamorous, right? It wasn't that. And I, so I wonder for you, yeah, how how do you now work with or speak to folks who are kind of in that same maybe sense of, wow, you know, I tried one monogamy clearly wasn't the answer. You know, I tried poly, you know, it was total agony, whatever that was, but how to arrive somewhere that is like you're saying, sort of dynamic, but also recognizes really the contextual limitations that so many face in the modern society to live certain ways because those support structures aren't there because of the ins insanity of, you know, capitalism because of, you know, all these things. It's hard. I have a lot of compassion for anyone who's trying to live a non-standard life. And that's, that's actually what, what this guy, Nathan was saying to me. He was like, look, I know, I know it's not really a smart move to just sort of do the conventional thing, but that's what everyone else is doing. And it's really hard not to just go with the herd, you know, and, and he's right. It is hard. 
So I don't, I don't want to minimize that, the challenge of that, you know, but ultimately I think you need to, the only path to self-actualization is to be true to yourself and let the chips fall where they may, but you have to be true to yourself. That's not, that doesn't mean you have to be selfish. It doesn't mean you have to be self-obsessed. It means you need to know, you need to listen to the voice of your higher self, because if you ignore it, that voice will be silenced and then you'll be lost. And if you look around, you see a lot of people in their 40s, 50s and older who have no idea what that voice is telling them because they stopped listening to it years ago and they now they can't tell it from the voice of advertising or the voice of their mother or the voice of their religion or the, all these other voices that are shouting in our heads. Um, you need to really respect the voice of your intuition and your deepest sense of what's real um, so that the voice won't become inaudible. And, and I don't know where that leads. And that's why I said earlier, I think it's much smarter to commit to a sense of integrity than it is to commit to a particular thing, like to say, well, I'm a, I'm a polyamorist and that's just the way I am. And, you know, if you're not a polyamorous baby, you know, this isn't going to work. Like that's just as rigid as someone who's insisting on some kind of 19th century, you know, marital structure. I, I feel like we make a mistake by labeling ourselves and each other with these sort of rigid categorizations that don't allow for flexibility, both on an individual level, but even more so on a relational level, because relationships are much more fluid and changing because you've got two people going through their different life cycles and moods and, you know, dealing with things. So it's exponentially more complex and nuanced than just one person going through life. And I think we need to really respect that and, and understand that. So advice that I give people, first of all, it tends to be very minimal because, you know, it's so individual. I don't think there's any kind of blanket advice you can give people that isn't very general philosophical stuff, like be as honest as you can, right? Or or Augustine's great line, love and do as you please. I mean, that kind of covers it, right? Like if you are acting out of love, you might make mistakes, but you won't do anything that you're really ashamed of because you're coming from a place of love. And so the discipline that we apply to ourselves should always be to try to move closer to this place where our motivation is one of sincere love and what's best for the other people that we're interacting with. If we're really coming from that place, then I feel like you don't really need to worry about the specifics. You don't need to worry about what if this, what if that, what if the other thing you're coming from a place of love, you're centered, you're kind, you're decent, you're generous, you'll do the right thing. Just be clear in yourself and then you don't really need to plan. It's like people say, you know, I traveled. I told you I, I spent a lot of my life traveling. And I, I years ago, I remember someone said, you always pack your fears, right? So you're going on a trip 
and you're like, well, what if it rains? Oh, better take a raincoat. What, what if it's muddy? Better take those boots. You know, what if I shit in my pants? Better take extra underwear. What if I, you know, the, what if I get malaria? Oh, got to take that. What if I own oh, mosquito nets? I got to, so you end up with this giant backpack full of all your fears. And then you get there and you find out, well, I don't really need 90% of these things. And the other things I could have bought locally, you know, when the thing came up, the situation arose, I didn't need any of this shit, right? And I feel like that's how we go through life. We're constantly anticipating, well, what if, what if she falls in love with another guy? Well, what if I, I'm more attracted to someone else? And what, you know, what if she catches me doing this? Or what if I think about that? Or what if just come from a place of, of love and sincerity and don't fucking worry about it. It'll be fine. That's the only advice I ever give to anybody. <laughs> it strikes me the the quality then of courage, right? Because I feel like courage is required for for hard conversations often, right? That that have a sense of hey, like just I, m- I remember being back in my marriage and even just the conversation, like hey, you know what? I'm noticing feelings of attraction towards this you know person in our life, this other woman. Let's say just having that conversation would have been or at least the fear of it would have been nuclear, right? Because a lot of people have to adhere to this idea that, you know, I don't even have attraction to other people, never, you know, right. in, in marriage. Uh, and so I've, it seems to be that the, the courage, requirement of courage is there to say, hey, look, I'd love to share something with you, you know, because otherwise oftentimes, and at least for me too, that can lead to resentment, right? Or like a, a wedge being driven, right? The sense of even the fear of something not coming to pass or coming to pass, you know, can even drive that that wedge. But to continually return to what's true in the relationship without any, you know, leaping to enacting anything seems to be perhaps another recipe, right? To at least, I think it was Adrian Mir Brown who wrote uh, Emergent Strategy, but she has this line, she says, to move at the speed of trust is an orientation that feels, feels helpful versus, you know, barring the gates of any possibility of, you know, of, of challenge or or, or, or alternate anything, you know, but, but just like, Hey, let can we stay in contact with whatever comes up? I hear that also in what you're saying. Yeah. And I, I think you need, you can't function healthily in a relationship with another person. If you haven't worked out your relationship with yourself. So I think we run into problems because people, especially like people in their twenties, they're trying to figure out who they are while they're also trying to form a relationship with another person who's trying to figure out who he or she is. And I mean, that's, there's just too many moving parts there, you know, (laughs) it's just a mess. So I feel like, you know, the the first step is okay. Not that, not that you're not going to change throughout life. Not that you have some sort of immutable, you know, quality that you just need to identify and then you're done. But I think there does have to be a sense that like, you know what? I'm okay on my own. I don't need to be in a relationship. So let's take that pressure off, right? If you're going to leave me, I'll be, I'll survive. I'll be sad, but I'll survive and I'll find someone else because I'm basically a good person. And you got to get to that point where you know you can swim, right? And then jumping off the boat or swimming away from a particular island isn't as terrifying. And I think a lot of people are stuck in relationships because they're terrified of of being alone. You know, they, they don't have friendships, they don't have self-respect or self-love. And so 
the only love they're getting is from this person who doesn't really know them very well. So even that isn't really love because who do they love? It's not me. And so they end up in, in these weird, you know, sort of facsimiles of relationships that aren't really relationships. Because the thing is, if the person doesn't see you, if the person you're in a relationship with doesn't really know you because you're hiding things from them, because you're lying to them, because you're filtering things out and you're, you're, you're doing this weird dance of only showing them the things that you think they want to see, then when that person says, I love you, you're, you don't believe them because you know she doesn't see you. She doesn't really know you. So what the hell kind of love is that? It's not her fault. It's your fault. You're not letting her see you, so she can't love you. And I, I think we shoot ourselves in the foot doing that a lot. And, you know, in my own experience, when I read that article by John Perry Barlow that I mentioned earlier, it was like finding, it was like realizing I was gay or something. It was like, holy shit, this is who I am? I had no idea. That's why it wasn't working. Oh, now I get it, right? It was this great sort of epiphany. But I thought that what it meant was that no woman would ever want to really be in a relationship with me again, because mm -hmm. I was starting out saying, listen, uh, I think I can be emotionally extremely monogamous. I'm very loyal. I'm very sincere. I'm very honest. But I really like women and I have a lot of women friends and some of them I have sex with and I'm not going to lie about that. That's who I am. And that makes me happy and that makes me feel alive and I will not give that up. So, and so I started when I was, you know, in the first or second date or, you know, <laughs> encounter with women, we would have that conversation and I would say that. And I thought that meant, you know, as I said, that they would just be like, later, dude. And half of them were. Half of them were like, yeah, that's not what I'm looking for. And the other half were like, wow, a man who isn't lying to me. That's amazing. Thank you. Totally blew my mind. I was not expecting that at all. And what I ended up seeing is that that a lot of women are so tired of dudes trying to shape what the woman sees and trying to play them in one way or another. That when a guy just says, look, I like you. I would love to spend more time with you, but this is who I am. This is the deal. I don't make apologies for who I am. For a lot of women, that is so refreshing and so comforting because it means if this guy is risking everything to be honest with me, he's not going to lie to me about bullshit down the road. He's not going to lie and, you know, be playing head games with me. Because I think a lot of people don't know where they are relative to the other person. You know, like you canceled. We're supposed to have dinner Thursday. You canceled. You said you had to like deal with your mom. Did you really? Or were you out with another woman? Or are you just tired of me? Or, you know, what's really happening? Well, a guy who tells you this stuff at the beginning, he'll tell you what's really happening. And that's incredibly comforting for women. And men, I imagine, even though it's counterintuitive in some ways, because you are having an uncomfortable conversation. But the fact that you're willing and able to do that 
getting back to masculinity, I think that's something that women yearn for, yearn, yearn for from men is, you know, that's a man. That's a man. He'll say what, what is uncomfortable. He'll risk rejection to be true to himself. Boys don't do that. That's something men do. And I feel like that's the kind of lesson that young men need and, and aren't getting. And it's not about manipulating people or, or, you know, playing, nagging them and making them insecure. So they want to be with you. It's about being straight up and honest and true to yourself prior to any, any sort of relationship considerations. Well, Chris, I've deeply appreciated our time here. You know, the part that comes to me is, as sort of, you know, I always anticipate, you know, how to close good conversations. And one part of me wants to ask, you know, what do you see as the evolution of relationship as you've known, you've looked into the past centuries and more, and what do you see coming again? I mean, is there a return to a spiral of sort of, you know, another iteration of ways of the past now in this you know, modern context. I'd be curious just as a way of closing us out here today. Well, I, I was commissioned to write an article for a German magazine a few years ago about the future of sex and relationships. And mm -hmm. the way I approached that was, or, or I should say the, the sort of image that came into my head was a stream with a big rock in the middle and it sort of diverged into two, two streams, right? I feel like we are hitting that rock right now, historically speaking. I think, you know, we're facing a, a crisis unlike any other or a, a collection of crises that we haven't faced before as a, as a species. And I think we'll go in two different directions and maybe we'll all go one direction or the other, or more likely we'll split and some will go down one path and some will go down the other path. Like, you know, kayakers, when they get to that point in the stream, some will go to the left, some will go to the right. I think in one direction is a continuation of where we are, which is a sort of erosion of masculine and feminine energies, a, a continuing shaming of those energies and repression and, you know, sort of a black mirror episode where everyone just becomes the same and uh, eroticism um, becomes something that's commodified further. And we are only really having sex with artificial intelligence and, you know, with our our 3D goggles and our genital reception monitors attached and, you know, or just straight into our brains somehow. And uh, it just becomes video games and nonsense. The other path uh, is where I think this whole sort of civilizational superstructure actually collapses or you know, fractures in ways that create opportunities for people to sort of reassert some of these biological and, and basic human fundamental truths, which are that we are primarily is that we are a species that cooperates. We are a species that takes care of each other. So 
and I forget which book it was in Sex at Dawn or Civilized to Death, but I, I talked about Lord of the Flies, this, you know, book that sold millions of copies and all school kids are made to read it. And it's all, and it's all about how when civilization disappears, we turn into monsters and we destroy each other and we, you know, victimize the vulnerable and it becomes this sort of power mad, horrible, dog-eat-dog world. When I was researching Civilized to Death, I looked into disaster sociology, uh, which is the study of how people behave in disasters. And what researchers have found is that when the trappings of civilization fall away, what actually happens is the opposite of what's depicted on Lord of the Flies. People take care of each other. People look out for strangers. People are generous in ways they've never been generous before in their lives. And people who survive these disasters look back at that time in their lives as the most meaningful, wonderful period of their lives, even though they were living under a tarp and they had no food and they had no heat and they had no idea how they were going to survive. Turned out they survived because somebody they had never met before helped them. And then they helped that person and they felt that they had meaning because they were participating in something and helping other people and being helped and, and being integrated in this social organism that is really the most human thing there is. You know, what is the worst punishment we can give to someone? The worst criminal, solitary confinement right? Being alone is the worst punishment we can have. And yet here we are in a society where more people live alone than have ever lived alone before in the history of our species. Old people are dying alone. People are suffering alone all over the place, but they've got air conditioning and they've got double glazed windows and they've got, you know, all the modern conveniences. They have a garbage disposal and a fucking blender, but they've got no friends and they've got no, no, they don't have $400 that they could, you know, take out of the bank in an emergency. That's considered progress. So I think that the other current would be paradoxically, the good news is the shit can really hit the fan. And then we're forced to look at how are we going to get through this together? And if we do that and we see, okay. There's a six bedroom, five car garage McMansion here that, you know, mom, dad, and one kid were living in miserable. Five families could live in there. We could share the washing machine. We could share a car. We, I'll watch your kids when you need to go to work. You watch my dog when I go on vacation. We could take care of each other. Unfortunately, the only way we're going to do that is if we're forced to, but it seems like we are being forced to. And so I think that for me, I, I hate to be sort of, a, you know, an opportunist and, and looking at the bright side of apocalypse, but the best thing that could happen is that this social structure that we've built that's making us all so miserable with more teenagers committing suicide and taking antidepressants and suffering from anxiety than ever before. Obviously, it's not working. It's going in the wrong direction. So from my perspective, the best thing that can happen is this whole thing could start to fall apart and people will turn to each other and figure out how to get through this together. And that's why I came to this little town, you know, throwback to the beginning of the conversation. 
because, you know, we've got some friends who are, who've bought land here and they're coming here and they're, you know, we all own our own land and we're, you know, it's not a commune, but we take care of each other. So, you know, you need a hammer, you need, you need someone to, to help you install the windows. I'm here. I need someone to, you know, help me do this thing here. You've got a tractor. Come on over on Thursday. So there's this sort of small scale cooperative mutual dependence that I think is really healthy and not coincidentally gives young men an opportunity to be meaningful again because they're physically strong. They've got energy. They know how to hammer nails and install some plumbing and put a roof up. And people love that and people admire that. And I think that's, we need to create a world again where, um, you know, just being young and strong and sincere and kind is enough again. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful prayer. Thanks, Chris. Appreciated the, yeah, the winding back around again to, to where we started and grateful for your time today coming out from a beautiful Crestone <laughs> in your little booth. And, yeah, you uh, should come visit sometime. It's a pretty cool place. Mm. I'd love to. Happy to happy to chat with you anytime. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Mythic Masculine. If you enjoyed what you heard, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts and share on your social media. Once again, you're also invited to find The Mythic Masculine on Substack. You'll be able to subscribe to forthcoming episodes as well as become a paid supporter. Visit themythicmasculine.com slash supporter to learn more.